0: what's going on everybody i'm will button your host for today on adventures for devops joining me today as my co-host jillian Rowe. hello and special bonus today because we have not won but two guests on the show. We have Hirsch Tapadia and Adam Dahlgren from All Stacks, Gentlemen, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. Good morning, afternoon. We're on the West Coast right now. Good morning. Good night.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm on the Western side of the U.S. as well. And then Jillian is in, you're in Qatar, right?
2: Yep. One more month. Yeah.
0: One more month.
2: Right on. One more month.
3: and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: So when we were, just before I hit the record button, Hirsch, you said something that just really resonated with me, and it ties into our topic today, value, value stream management, but you said Metrics are just table stakes, and I thought that was such a cool phrase. You want to elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, data collection is just a tool to get you started on decision making, and and ultimately that's what metrics are. You have to have metrics to make decisions because you have to understand. And you know, when we think about what we do and when we when we make decisions, we start from a place of are we happy with what we have, and then if we're not happy with what we have, then we decide is it worth making a change? And if we, if it is worth making a change, what kind of change do we want to make? And so if you think about that sequence, the the first thing starts with metrics, because we say, for example, we released code to production 22 times last week. Cool. What does that mean? Is that enough? Is that too much? Am I happy with that? Am I unhappy with that? Did it create value? Did it not? What was the orientation of it? I don't I don't know the answer to all that. All I have is a metric. I counted the number of times we released code to production, but then I have to make a judgment call, right? So the metric is just table stakes. All it does is it gives us an indicator. We look at it over time, ideally, so it's not just a snapshot. And then we take that data and we say, okay, given this, now what? And all of the real value is created in the now what? And so that's why we say all metrics are, are table stakes. It's just a place to start the conversation. You'd argue that like management of the business all exists in the now what, right? That, that's like the, we make business decisions influenced on those, influenced by those metrics, right? Framed with a context, but the metrics are are literally just the, like her says, so just a starting point.
2: Can we back up yeah. a little bit? Maybe talk a little bit. Like, what is a value change that because the show's pretty pretty technical most of the time. So if you're not telling us we should be changing everything for the hot new framework, I don't I don't even know what to make of this. I think I need more
1: context. <laughs> 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 yeah. So when we what we've always really been focused on is what like what did we gain from taking the action. Right. And so in engineering, it's been really challenging because we've been trying to figure this out for 30, 40 years, right? Really since starting to write code. And we're in this like kind of interesting pendulum over the last 40 years where we're like metrics driven, feelings driven, metrics driven, feelings driven. You're just going back and forth and like whatever generation you came up in, you, you probably just rebelled against what your parents did. And, <laughs> and, Went over and said, wow, "Manage that feelings. That's crazy. You know, we gotta we gotta get some data in here." But what was really hard was to to do it in a way that was productive, holistic, and non disruptive to the developer experience. And until now, we haven't really been able to do that. Right? Really, with the advent of cloud first, API first applications, where we can gather really demographic level data, epidemiological level data. Right? How How is this organization running its processes? And are we are we getting to high likelihood of success versus trying to just arbitrarily pick a threshold and say, you know, you need to take X to Y. Now that we're able to do that, we can then shift the conversation from how many lines of code did you write or how many deploys did you send to, for this organization, what does success mean and how are we contributing to that success? So one of the things we see across Like a lot of our customers at Allstacks, for example, is around the time they're instrumenting a tool like Allstacks, trying to get data around the engineering processes. They're also trying to set corporate objectives, OKRs, goal setting frameworks. And then they're coming in and they're trying to attribute how engineering participated in the goal setting and the goal attainment. And what's hard about that is like, it's not necessarily a direct line, right? So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta nest all this data together. And link it in a way that allows you to, to draw these conclusions. So if, if we take that earlier comments, so, you know, we deployed 22 times last week. I mean, CEO is probably going to be like, okay, cool, man. I'm happy for you. <laughs> but if you said we deployed 22 times last week and 10 of those deploys supported 40% of our upcoming sales pipeline, five of those deploys reduced bugs that contributed to last quarter's churn by 22% and we made the application faster, which increased NPS and so on and so forth. All of a sudden you're, you're ascribing value, right? And if you had an OKR that says, you know, we want, we want our, our, our customers to be net referrers of the product. We want them to be evangelists. Here are all the ways we supported that. You know, we made the app faster, less buggy, um, more responsive, more, more tightly oriented to their goals, easier to, to navigate. Now we're talking about how we're all contributing to the value that the business is trying to, trying to generate. So we're all doing it together. And so the metrics contribute to that, right? But it's all in that now what, right? We did deploy 22 times, now what? What do we do? What do we accomplish with that? And that's the conversation that we're seeing change across the industry that, that really has never happened until recently. There's been attempts at it, right? But it's been challenging for a lot of, kind of really low-level tactical reasons. And now that we are at this place where metrics can be table stakes, we can evolve the conversation past that. We can evolve the conversation between data collection and really evolve the conversation to value creation.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that I've seen in some of the more successful teams that I've worked with, because for so many companies, engineering is a significant portion of the, the cost of operating that business. And as engineers, you know, we tend to geek out on, you know, servers and frameworks and code and libraries and things like that. And the more successful teams I've worked with actually do a really good job of translating that into, okay, so the customer who's using our site or our service, why do they care? And like when you can bridge those two, then I think you have a a really powerful engineering team that's... That's able to understand the why behind what they're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. I have this story. So when I was in college, I worked at IBM, and i I spent two years there, and I just didn't understand what I was doing re- in relation to the goals of the business. and you know where I was at the time, I think it was the biggest IBM site in the world. It was like ten or fifteen thousand employees. And I was in this group, this massive WebSphere division. And you know there were thousands of us, and I would ask around, and like, so what do we do, right? Like, why do we? What's the point? Like, what are we trying to accomplish here? And I never. Really, what would you say you do here? Yeah, like <laughs> I never, it was very like office face right? People
2: just tell you like, be quiet, you're going to ruin it for the rest of us,
1: right? <laughs> and so I never, I never got an answer to this question. And I've met people since then, over ten years, who also worked in some form of that division. Uh, tell them the story, and they kind of laugh, and they say, "Well, I, I think I could probably tell you, but no one actually like tells me, right?" <laughs> so I, I still haven't figured it out. And so after my two stints there, I, I just I was like, "I don't want to work here anymore," and I left. And I it, it was kind of interesting. They were like, "Why are you leaving?" And I was like, "I just I don't I don't exactly know, but like I I don't just don't find meaning in the work here." And I went and, and took a hard ride into startups. But I've been reflecting on that story. And really what it comes down to is like, if you think about where we are in the economy right now, how hard it is to staff developers, how hard it is to retain them, how hard it is to compete for salary and benefits with the really big companies and how liquid a lot of the big companies are with their stock compensation it's essentially like cash, right? So like this this ROI of going to do a startup to like be, be a developer and get the big payout, the ROI is not as different as it used to be versus a big company, right? But the, that's not as meaningful, which means that the work has to be meaningful. Yeah. And that's something we can really, really win on. And if the work is meaningful, what does that mean? Like the person has to personally identify with the work they do day to day, but they also have to be able to identify that the work that they're doing has an impact on the organization they're involved in, right? They're not isolated. They're not just sitting there fixing forms, you know, on your on your app and wondering, like, does anyone ever fill out this form, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, they have to be able to say, like, I shipped this. This work impacted the customer in this way. You know, it increased revenue, it increased satisfaction. It made someone's life better, right, in some measurable way. And I was a part of that. And what's cool about this data and, and what like what we've been able to do with, with all sex with our data model is we've been able to link all this together. So an engineer can say like I shipped this this feature. That feature was part of this OKR and we hit that OKR and allowed our company to do X. And that's just way more grounded in finding meaning of the work that you do.
2: That is very cool. I don't think I've been involved in like any just straight up software engineering teams where the conversation has been that transparent it's almost always been like i have to like really dig to find out like wait wait a minute why are we doing this why are we doing this (laughs) and then you know and then i sort of get like the message at least two or three levels down it's like somebody told the project manager and you know who told the team lead who told us and this kind of thing so i think that's that's a very interesting way of uh of doing business and also trying to compete i suppose do you think that helps you compete to keep developers and things around yeah
1: oh yeah absolutely and i think it's required. We're Like we're never, as a startup, to be able to compensate someone the way like Apple does. You know, we're not the most valuable company in the world, so <laughs> you're inherently at a disadvantage, right? But Apple's also a very large company, and the uh, the experience that you have at Apple is highly dependent on the organization you're in, the group you're in, the manager you have, and so you know it's it's not this homogenous place, but what. What we've been able to do is provide access to our people either through the data or the, or literally access to the leadership for all of our employees and center them in that way. And I think if you don't do that as a company, even if you're a big company, you're not going to retain the people. Yeah. And you have so many options, right? In Raleigh, where I live, you can pretty much work for any company because if they didn't used to be there, now they've open offices or everyone's happy to hire remote. So like, it doesn't matter. You can work for anyone. When you have so many choices, you have to find meaning.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things that really highlights that is there's like the running joke in tech of when people ask you, what do you do? And regardless of what you do, a lot of us just default to the answer. Oh, I work on computers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, part of that's because it's sometimes it's really hard to explain what you do. But I think a bigger portion of that is just like you described that we're doing stuff, but we don't really know how it impacts anyone in the world, if it impacts anyone in the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
1: And and if you can't even explain it, right, like if, if I don't know, if I can't tell myself how the work I'm doing impacts anyone in the world like the rest of the business probably can't figure that out either, right? Even your colleagues can't figure it out. And so then you're disconnected. And then when you're disconnected, now it's like engineering and the rest of the company are on these like parallel railroad tracks that occasionally stop at the same station. And (laughs) we're hoping that like you're roughly on the same route, right? And that's not a good place to be, right? We all want to be on the same train. And so if you think about what you said, right, like, I work on computers, I write code, or I, I test product, or whatever, versus like, I help someone solve this problem. If you can get someone to understand what problem they help them solve, their, their constituents solve, the way they do it becomes less important. And once you adopt that mentality, it actually, I think, makes you a better engineer, a better developer, right? Because then, you, you know, Jillian, you were talking earlier, like, what cool new framework should we be adopting? Right? What new like DevOps infrastructure tool should we be adopting? Like the meaning, the dogma behind those things fade because what you're really chasing is is the value that you're creating. I helped Will solve X problem, right? And the way I did it is less important than what value we created. And so then it doesn't matter if we're on you know Vue or React. What matters is the customer with the value. I think what's interesting on this is like the, the, you know, the very human approach to it. You bring the data in, but there is this, this very kind of humanist approach in the way we think about it, and it's great culturally and it's great for developing people. But it's actually really great for the business, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> going back to that, like it's really, really useful for the business to know. Here are the top priorities that we have as a as an executive team. Division by division, right? The things that our stakeholders are demanding from us. And then what is directly being worked on at what rate contributed by whom? And to be able to draw a line all the way into that, because there's then much more direct ownership over it. And there's a much quicker, the feedback loop is faster, right? The, the dopamine hits of, we did this together, right? We are getting better together. That is actually a really great thing for business building, not just culturally, right? Um, and we certainly see the we see the impacts of that in in our customers.
0: Yeah, cause I think we're all really looking for like a flag to rally behind, you know. And so, in in absence of one that represents the business, I think that's where a lot of us end up rallying behind the flag of a given framework, you know, It's just because we don't we don't have anything else binding us together.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah everyone's looking for for a community right
0: Yeah yeah So do you find that this yeah that's, this approach resonates more with larger enterprises or startups or a mix of in between
1: I think it it resonates at the high level it resonates all over right but mm-hmm. pragmatically practically what you see is there's there's what we call the dining table problem right it, we all fit around the table and we can just look up and connect with the person on the other side of the table. It becomes harder to extract yourself out of that situation and look down at it and say, like, you know, are we all marching together or are we all moving in the same direction? Like, The problem is not as salient in that moment but what we see is like the first time you split that one team into two teams and put an engineering manager there between the VP of engineering CTO and, and the developers all of a sudden we're playing telephone we start to feel disconnected we start to look for other ways to maintain that that social network that community and when we get there you know, the, the instinct is, oh, like, well, we need data. You know, we're, we're trying to look for outliers. We're trying to like wrangle those outliers and, and manage it that way. But that's, that kind of becomes the end game, right? Managing the metrics becomes the end game. Right. And then you lose sight of what was the mission, what was the purpose. So there's definitely this flip. We we kind of see it happen typically around 25, 30 developers, you know, like two teams, two. Two kind of middle management layers, we call them moms, managers, with managers, and then, and then your senior leadership. And at that point, it becomes harder for, say, your head of product to figure out, like, who's my counterpart? Who do I talk to? How do I, how do I understand what I need to do to help or what I can be working on or so on and so forth? And, and then you start to lose agency, right? You become really reactive and say, oh, the, the release is going to be late. I'm reacting to that rather than Oh, the release is trending late. We're not happy about that. What can I do to maybe manage scope? What can you know you do to clear out some of the way? And we can work together to, to shape the outcome that we want. It's sort of like a little bit of organizational complexity and technology complexity, too. But organizational complexity that once you've seen it enough times, you're like, oh, yeah, this group. They're generally around the size we are just talking about, but they kind of exhibit very specific characteristics where you're like, yep, they're here. They they are having a hard time on these kind of problem sets. And now this approach will click in very well if you get the buy-in.
2: I would imagine it would be much more difficult to get that kind of buy-in on enterprise because enterprise companies are uh, you know, generally much bigger and there's many more layers of abstractions between the worker bees, I suppose, and the not. Have you guys found that or is it, you know, I guess it's, people who are drawn to you probably aren't quite so much like that as well.
1: We, we find that it's generally fairly easy. The larger the company is to get the buy-in to the concept, right? Because they feel disconnected. They know they're disconnected. They know they're very siloed, right? And it's like kind of a accepted problem in enterprise. What, what we have to help them see is you can't. Try to force everybody onto a single process as the solution. You can't force people to work in ways that are anathema to the to the ways they like to work. You can't try to like you know use a blunt instrument to solve these problems. And so, what's different for us, like, is you know we we talked about this earlier at the beginning, where you, know, you have to be iterative and agile in how you do this work. You can't do a full year of change management to then start solving the problem. Which is what a lot of the old school, like value stream management providers would do. And so what we try to show is like, let's we'll get wired up, see what's true. We'll do that very quickly. Cause for, for us with all stacks, it's like a couple API tokens and data processes, processes, you don't make any changes. And then once you see what's true, we say, okay, are we happy with this? Right. Going back to the, the original problem, given this data, what do we, now what? It's like, okay, given the cycle time, are we happy with it? We like that it took two weeks to, to fix the bug, or we wish it was a week, you know, or are we fine with it, whatever. And so then you identify like critical friction points and you just work on those. And those could be different in different teams, but the collective action across these different teams starts to create these incremental gains and it then becomes like a, it's like an index fund, right? There's 7% compound interest every year, <laughs> the higher. You're wealthy, right? And so that's, that's the goal, right? We'll, we'll find all your wait states where things are just idle and people are just waiting. Let's cut those out, right? Find out where something is taking a little bit longer than you want it to and figure out what the root of that friction is and and start to change it. And then really start to radiate that information out of the organization so that engineering can advocate for itself. Not saying, oh, this, this, this is a thing that happens. It's here were the inputs. Here's what threw us off track. Here's what's changing and how fast it's changing so that I can tell you how confident I am in the statements I'm making, right? This, this release, this, this feature we're trying to ship, this epic that we're working on, it's, it's trending late today, but every day it's getting a little bit earlier and it's a little bit faster getting earlier. That's a much more confident statement than, yeah, this thing's on time, but like, by the way, it's been getting a day later every day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's green but it may not be green in a week right like those things are, are the types of things you can once you radiate those out now you get the tools to say like hey i'm a i'm a participating member of this and so in enterprise it's like those organizations it, there's a little bit of i don't know it's almost like initial fatalism of yeah we're enterprise we know we have a problem like we're by default slower by default less innovative and it doesn't have to be but for the lack of any incremental way to solve the problem. The problem felt so large and you had to, you know, eat the whole apple at once that there was just this acceptance of, of how it is. And so presenting them this new way to solve these problems is not really new, but it's accessible in a way that wasn't ever accessible before. It's just more tractable, right? It, yeah. It, yeah. It creates the opportunity to be successful. Yeah. That whole, the, the ability to, uh, it's amazing to me how it resonates with our customer base like just come in turn the lights on let's not spend a ton of time divining whether or not we're certain thing is good or bad and try to make all these plans about what are we going to change let's just like let's just get the data flip it on because we can do it fast and easy and without a lot of overhead and then from there it's just like oh okay i assumed this thing over here kind of sucked and i thought this was on track that may or may not be, both of those may or may not be true. And we will confirm or, you know, let you know, yeah, you were completely wrong about this. But that's like, that's a pretty interesting, you know, it's novel information and it feels really satisfying to our stake, you know, to our customer stakeholders to get in and be like, all right, this is, I, I'm in a new, I'm in kind of in a new house here. Like this is, this is a new place for me to operate. And because it's fast and easy and smooth. Then they're like, oh well. Then the human part comes in. They're like, I've got stakeholders who also deserve to have this fast and easy and smooth way of knowing what's the state of affairs. Are we kind of in within our tolerances? Are we trending better? Are we trending poorly? Right? And then that's a little bit of that. It starts to snowball a little bit. And it's but it's very human. It's very much like these these people. There's a lot of overhead that goes into providing your TPS reports about how things are going. (laughs) and gathering all of your data to do your spreadsheet jockeying metrics that will go out of date the next day and that's toilsome so take away the toilsome stuff turn the lights on and then have a good honest way of looking at your system that you're that you're trying to make better you know use the data use the data easily and quickly and then make it better as a group of humans shape shape what you're going to to do your own outcomes
0: I love the fact that we're not even 30 minutes into this and you've already dropped two Office Space references. <laughs> I'm, known, I'm known for that. <laughs> That's awesome. I drop them every once in a while, but Jillian's never seen the movie and our other co-host, John, Jonathan, hasn't either. So oh, gosh. I feel like I'm out here doing, you know, stand-up I I routine really for one.
2: Watch it at this point, so I'm, I'm missing like... Missing a lot of context sometimes in these conversations.
1: Hey, if you if you've felt under-indexed in previous episodes, um, on those, like <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to try to help try to help you, like kind of catch up to your waterline here.
2: So, <laughs> thank you, I appreciate it.
0: So, is there a way to like if you decide to go down this path or you want to go down this path, is there a way to gauge how long it takes before you start seeing value from it? So
1: it's cool. Is- we pull all your historical data right away. And so from day one, you can start identifying the, the bottlenecks, the process issues, whatever problem you want to solve right away. Our, our models train on your history. So you get forecasting right away, you get anomaly detection right away. And so day one, you come in and you are automatically have a list of list of things that you can start working on. And then because everything's tracked over time, you can start to see the improvements immediately. And so what we've seen across our customer base is three really interesting stats. In in the last 12 months across our entire customer base, we saw an average decrease in cycle time by 7%, increase in velocity by 11% for stories, and then a 37% increase in pull request velocity. And so people were able to do this is kind of like my mantra in the team is like, let's do smaller things faster. And that's kind of something we've been able to push on all of our customers is just like smaller chunks more often, more frequently. And when we do that, it lowers the stakes for all the work we do, which means we can be more iterative, fail faster, and be more successful on the whole in the long run. So we typically see customers see value within the first quarter. and and then ongoing from then on out. The key thing though, Will, is that your problems are gonna change, right? Because let's say you have some process you wanna improve, right, and you improve it from here to here. Well, once it's here, it may not be the most important thing to work on anymore. We've gotten to a level of, okay, the now what is we're happy with it now, right? It's coming off. So what's the next biggest thing, right? It might be something else. We're working on code review issues. Turns out we've gotten to a place where we're pretty satisfied with code review, what we're really worried about right now is, is burnout. Too many people working nights and weekends. Let's work on that problem. Right. And what we want to do is we, we flex with you, right? The data is all there. It's at your fingertips. goes back to the metrics. It's a table stakes thing. We don't want you to spend any time collecting data. What we want you to do is, is looking for places to take action. And so maybe that first quarter is all focused on cutting out wait states. The next quarter is focused on something else entirely. How do we help our junior devs ramp faster? You know, how do we manage burnout? How do we make sure that when we, you know, when we slipstream stuff into the sprint, we actually know what it's allocated towards. So it's not just this like black hole of a bunch of stories we completed, but we don't know why, right? There's gotcha. a whole bunch of facets of the organization and we're there to help you improve along every one of them. It's like there's always a, there should be a, Higher quality problem to get onto, right? So we don't want we don't want you to be things to be static and that you just chip away at the exact same thing for years. That that's not progress, actually. Progress is progress is I isolated and removed this impediment, and I'm onto the next bigger, more important thing for the business. And yeah, it's going to be a problem, but uh, again, you you know, I I think about like that that feeling of like, okay, I I know. Exactly what's in front of me because I do have the data. I also have a team that I know is getting better. I have stakeholders who are able to understand very clearly the value that we're, that we're driving. I have a story that I'm beginning to build of believability and reliability, right? And forecastability. And, and then that, that lets you stare at the thing and be like, all right, great. We can go, we can go solve this next bigger problem in the next two months. And then find what's behind that, because it does not ever end, and it shouldn't. And I think too often people think about it like,
0: "Oh yeah, get get your metrics, and then find your problem
1: and solve it, and then like, okay, great. Where where are you arriving to? <laughs> yeah, check the box <laughs> and, and move is, on. Yeah, even, even more right. And, and so. is it even appropriate for your organization?
3: Hi, this is Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So, once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah. I, I
1: was talking to a company and they primarily worked with like really old school traditional industries as their customers. And they are like, we want to be a CI CD shop. And they were deploying, you know, multiple times a week, new features, and dipping them out. And the product marketing org was like getting blown up by the customers because they couldn't train their users fast enough. They're like, stop changing the product. Stop changing the product. <laughs> <laughs> we just got them. We just got them used to this. Stop changing the product. And they're like, if you, if you change the product again before the end of the next quarter, like we're canceling. That's, that's what they, that's what they told them because it was. It, you know, these were organizations where it was a lot of like in-person manual training mm-hmm. to get their, get their customers on board and they just couldn't be bought. And they were like in the field, you know, so it's not like you could even get the people into one place. And so they'd be like out on a farm somewhere trying to use a product and like, this doesn't look like what it used to be. And I just drove two hours through Nebraska to like get to this field and now I'm, like I I can't use it. But, like, <laughs> it's like... So it's this is this realization that like, well what's what's appropriate for some B2C SaaS app may not be appropriate for this ag tech thing that that, you know, is selling to farm hands. And so I would pay you pay money to...
2: to hear that conversation. Like to hear like somebody trying to explain to the software engineers, like, listen, no, you can't change this because when these guys go out and see the cows in Nebraska, like they can't have it be different. That must it's... have been so interesting. I would I really would have paid to hear that.
1: It's fascinating, right? And so, so like for those organizations, they're like, well, we, we still want to be able to have like a very high rate of shipping feature, but it's getting collected in this release that only goes out once a quarter. And so what they had to do was they were like, well, our cycle time is not actually like three months for the first ship, first feature we shipped in, in January Q1. We need to change our definition of done to match our, our release cycle. And then we need, you know, another definition for getting it out into the wild. And so you, you have to like think about those problems, like what's appropriate for you in addition to what's, what's cool and what's the greatest new methodology framework. This is, this is all a really good example of a, I guess a principle that we follow here at Allstacks, um, which is basically just like the, the software teams. They're not monolith. They're, monolith is an interesting word i guess to use <laughs> here but like the the organizations are not homogenous they you you'll never find a group that's you know even 30 people but certainly into the 300 or 3000 you you won't find a company where they all have the same process they all have the same cadence they they do things in a homogenous enough way that it is just like really clear snapshotable in a simple fashion, it's just, that's not reality. Reality is it's ugly and it's kind of supposed to be. And there's lots of different, you know, people have different purviews and different remits and, you know, they're being asked to do different things and they've got different systems and process. And all these people are, there There are lots of transformations being done, right? They're all chasing homogeneity a little bit or they talk about it that way. And we think that that's kind of garbage, honestly we we think it's never really going to happen so what have we done we've we've said we have to be able to handle the custom weird process and and data and the differing approaches to to shipping and you know you can find people who are like we we are dogmatic on this specific way of operating here it is it's from the book right and you're like oh yeah no i've read that book and i know 12 other customers who say that they adhere to that exact thing and all of you are different <laughs> right. And, and you're you're wildly different and you know what that's great those are choices that you guys have made to run your business uh, and and like it's usually working for them pretty well so it's it's i don't know may, maybe maybe we have a, a somewhat odd take on this but chasing the homogeneity is kind of a terrible idea em- embracing the embracing like there's a lot of different stuff floating around because every company is different it's not just software teams, like every company is different. They kind of have to be. You have to be able to handle that data easily, quickly, right? Thoughtfully. So there's a lot of flexibility that we've had to build into the platform to be able to, to do that. Right on.
0: How long have y'all been building all stacks?
1: I've been building it largely since 2018. Oh, nice. Um, so you can think about we, we went through Techstars in Austin. Okay. And that's kind of our demarcation for when this thing became real and, and started to grow.
0: Nice. So it's um, readily apparent, at least to me, the value that the business gets from this and why the top leaders in the company would want to embrace this. What's been the response from the, the engineering teams themselves?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's different. It's, it's a little different depending on the nature of the company and like what problems they're trying to solve. But what we see is like, if I cut this into really broad buckets, there's like three types of stakeholders we have to satisfy. There's, there's the people who are working directly with the, the developers, the people who are kind of managing teams of developers, you know, the, the moms of the, the column, and then the senior leaders. And they have different remits, right? And so the, the folks at the top, they are kind of aligning the org and understanding investment. Right. Are we, are we investing our resources in the right places, like maintenance versus new roadmap development, et cetera? Does it match what we've committed to, et cetera? The people in the middle tend to be the arbiters of kind of delivery. Right. So you see like somebody owns a product and this is the next feature that, that we're shipping and they have a product owner Counterpart, right? So, some engineering leader and some product owner—they work together with product marketing, customer success—to really like drive forward momentum on a product. And then the teams are very process-oriented, right? Because they may not have gotten picked like which product team they're on. They may be slightly abstracted away from the day-to-day like roadmapping decisions that are being made. They're very execution-oriented. And so, what we see is different things different levels so at the teams and and what we see with developers it's it's really centered around the concept of flow right are we able to drive our our processes in a way that are as consistent as possible our likelihood is very high our median outcome is is really good and worry less about ideally these teams should worry less about Managing their outliers and really focus on the medium. Yeah. And so we try to help them there. And what we find is when they're able to do that, it's really great for the developers because it becomes really obvious. If your mediums are really good, it becomes really obvious when something is disruptive to the team, right? Sales team comes in and drops a crazy feature request on you or some like biggest safety defect shows up. <laughs> you know, like, what, what happened there? Right. And it blows up the sprint. And we say, oh, we didn't hit our sprint content. Why? Well, look, this is what we normally do. This is how effective we are at doing it. And here's this thing that isn't typical. We went and handled it because, you know, we're committed to the success of the team and the company and everything. But this is a situation that's atypical. And here's the data that shows it. And so we can advocate for ourselves. As oh, well. nice. And that's that's the key, right? If you leverage the data to advocate for yourself. And it's this idea of like trading a little bit of accountability for a lot of advocacy. That's what we're opening. When we go to the middle, uh, level, it's about alignment around delivery, right? It's that concept of confidence we were talking about earlier. This, how is this thing trending and how fast is that trend changing? So say you're a product marketing person and you're communicating with your engineering leader and you're saying, Hey, we got these two big things that are coming out this month. We, um, you know, should I still be writing the customer comp? for both of these, say, well, this one's, you know, we're gaining confidence. This one, we're losing a little bit of confidence. I think we're going to hit both of them, but this is the reality. I want you to know that. And I'll keep you updated on how it's changing. A few weeks go by. The one we're losing confidence, we lost a lot of confidence on. The one we're gaining, we gained a lot. The, the product marketing leader at that point can make it their own choice. Hey, I'm going to focus on this one, not that one, because of what I see is, is being shaped on the ground. And then if you go to the executive level, it's like, here are the commitments we made as an organization, as a, as a company. Here's how we're contributing to those commitments. And here's what I need to keep contributing, right? And it's like, it's not just, I need more developers, I need more developers, I need more developers. It's like, hey, you guys did a great job selling the product last quarter. We've increased the customer base by a significant amount. And the amount of maintenance work we have to do to support that scale is changing. And so adding another developer doesn't mean we're just going to get more roadmap. We actually also have to keep the lights on. We have to invest in scale. We have to manage our tech. Techs, and here's how those allocations are changing. And here's what that means for the next quarter. And so it's a little bit of a different goal depending on what your role is. But it, this is how we support the whole organization. And that oh, that, right that top level conversation is, is trust, right? I mean, yeah, uh, ultimately that is, that is painting the picture, proving Proving your capabilities as an organization and then being trustworthy. The those the mid the, the really interesting thing with the the mid level folks who, who use our product, like that's a, a lot of that's about that repeatability, reliability, like this the system can keep going within a top kind of tolerance level and keep getting better. And that allows the senior executives to paint that picture of trust and and believability, you know, broadly to all the stakeholders. There's a there's a lot of interplay there between between those levels, and we find ourselves very useful to our customers in in helping build that story. And and again, it's a very human thing. It's like you know, it's it's an interpersonal relationship management at, at the very top. It just happens that there's a, a platform powered by data based on your historicals that is the surrounds of that
0: data driven people.
2: I'm really wondering if you guys have any kind of uh, interesting stories about talking to teams of developers, because, you know, I'm hearing you guys talk and I'm thinking that this would go so well with some engineering teams that I've worked with and go really, really poorly with others, because I know there are some teams that I've talked to, like, especially more on like the data science side of things where it tends to be what I think of as more product driven, whereas... And just sort of straight up software engineering, I tend to be working with a lot of teams who deeply care about the tech itself. And you can even explain to them things like, listen, we're not even looking for this thing in the lab. We don't we don't actually care about it. And they're like, no, but we need to have it because that will make the software complete or, you know, like just it's just something that doesn't actually matter from a business person, um, from like a business or kind of product perspective, but matters from kind of a software engineering perspective. So I don't know, I'm really wondering, like, does this change the kind of overall psychology of teams? Do you guys have any really good stories you can share? Any juicy gossip for me? (laughs) You
1: know, (laughs) I I think what it it's less about changing the psychology and more about communicating a expected behavior. So if this team is really front loaded and they're going to out like what's the exact right technology and we're gonna like really architect what we're building and then we're gonna go build it. But they're always very consistent in doing that and they can demonstrate that they do it and what the impacts of it are, then what they are is predictable. And if you're predictable you can be planned around. And if you can be planned around you can manage expectations and when you can manage expectations you build trust. So it's it's less about saying like use this process or that process, so whatever you process of views, like are you internally consistent? The hardest thing is when you know somebody's hot one week and cold the next week, right? And then they want to over-architect on this thing and then this other thing. They're like, yeah, let's just ship it (laughs) however it is, right? And you're just like, you don't know what to expect. Like what what do we what do we do with this? So I think that's interesting. You know, what what we often find is generally people are really well intentioned, but what they don't know often is who's carrying what weight. And so, for example, like a really simple example we see a lot of times is around code review, where let's say you have a a team of of five developers, all of them may be doing code review. But it might be that like one of the five is doing 80% of the code review. And the other four are doing 20% of the code review across all of that, right? And you're able to just show that because nobody thinks they're they and everybody's like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm participating. I'm, I'm reviewing some code. I'm doing some stuff, trying to be a team player. Right. Mm -hmm. But since everybody has that intention, nobody's putting their arm up and saying like, well, I'm doing way more. Right. Because they're not trying to make that statement. They don't feel, you know, persecuted in that way. But when you show it to the team, they say, Hey guys, like you guys are all doing one a week. This guy's doing eight. If all of you could do two a week. Right. Well, now we've just taken three off this person. And the loads balanced a little bit doesn't impact any of your days all that much. But now your whole team's faster. as result. And so it's this like eye opening kind of moment. The other thing that's really fun for me to look at is like, you know, we say like cycle time and story points, right? Like story points don't measure time, they measure complexity. Although, you know, our data shows that like R squared of 0.99 correlation to time, more story points tend to be tend to take longer. Makes sense, right? More complex things often take longer. But what we see is you know, in a lot of our data, you'll look at the outcomes of like, let's say you have, you know, eight definitions, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and you look at it and you're like, your ones, so your threes have the same outcomes. Your you know, your fours and fives look the same and your six, and your eights look the same. What if we just had small, medium, and large? Because I bet the time that you spent arguing over something <laughs> something like four or five. Probably was saw you know would have encompassed the time that it actually took differently. Let's let's just call this a medium, and let's just go to work. There's a little bit of magic in that too, like uh, in being able to say, "Oh gosh, like we devised a a way of of sizing our stuff that we thought was really smart, but then we looked at it and we said, actually, this is overblown because yeah, everything is either small." it's a day medium three or four days or big and it takes an entire sprint and like it's pointless to have differentiated you know fives and eights and all that all the way through there that's if you can get a team that's like intellectually honest enough and they put the data in front of themselves and make a choice themselves that is an amazing thing to see that's like a we are improving ourselves using the data that we have available To make the business better, because you will get faster. Like you'll be clearer about how big things are. You'll spend less time, you know, hashing it out over the differences, and you'll get faster. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you might actually realize that that medium actually needs two definitions, and then you can split it again. But practice it for a while. Right. It's it's an example of you know just the the fluidity with which like a a team can kind of operate you know in, in in the data in the platform. How you get onto a thing, you understand it better, you make some decisions, you follow it for a while. It either blows up in your face or gets a lot, gets a lot better and goes away. And you're onto, you know, you're, you're onto the next, the next problem. I'm trying to think, Jillian, of any like really interesting, safe enough to share, but <laughs> stories. I think there are some definitely some archetypes that we, that we see and we encounter, you know, in, in these teams there's there, there are a lot of there's a lot of like software executives who they'll like weirdly swoop in and like fly through tickets in Jira and just like see what see what sticks out to them and then ask for a lot of updates on that stuff like you, you can we'll go in and we'll see that that's happening in in some organizations that would want to start using us and you can you can kind of tell that they're try they're trying to do right by the team and do their own inspection and the swirl that that can cause is is pretty broad and so like that's that's a that's like a, a person who's like earnestly usually usually earnestly trying to understand what the people are doing and like taking it upon themselves to get into get into the stuff flying through some pr comments and you know looking through the tickets and just trying to like get their hands around it it's there's it's a like lot a- of time being wasted in in big companies of people trying to do that with and it's not helping them at all um so yeah. we're like we love to help solve that for them hey let's just build you the portfolio that is aligned to your specific goals broken down by team showing you the traction showing you the forecasts the risks all that
0: the That's helicopter kind of managers
1: yeah i mean they're they're trying you know yeah. they really are usually they're, they're um, trying to find some signal right like what's yeah. going right on the rails but then it becomes a rabbit hole where they're like i don't know what these 20 tickets are but I, I i remember hearing about this one so i'm gonna like laser into it right and, you start <laughs> all these and then you're like you know the team's like why is why is this person so like you know myopic here and like beating us up over this and what they're actually trying to figure out is like this higher level problem but they can't help themselves right because a lot of these folks right. you know they were they were technical they were you know formally trained in engineering they you know, grew through the ranks. Like VP of engineering is a really interesting role because it's largely a non-MBA role, right? As opposed to a lot of other other kind of VP level uh, roles and companies. And so you usually rose through the ranks and you participated in every level of running an engineering organization. So you're very intimately familiar with how a lot of these things work in theory. You might not know how it works anymore because your organization has grown and you've left that that stage behind, but you Mm -hmm. feel like you know how to help. And you're a pretty smart person. You try to dive in and do what you're doing. Like I'm I'm a servant leader. I'm unblocking everybody. You know, I'm doing my best. And really what you need is, is a level of information that this heretofore has not been accessible to you. I think another, another kind of type that we see, maybe a little bit of the opposite. You'll see a lot of the first time manager director who is hungry to learn and be great for their team and is often like just drowning in work, in overhead, in in complexity in their role, right? M- managing for the first time a lot of these these individual contributors, managing relationships in and amongst the their peers at their level, and then and managing upward. And these folks need a lot of help. They they kind of need to know like some things got your back, right? There's a way to eliminate some of the noise to collect the data really really quickly easily a way to start telling stories using using data right these are folks that we we can spot them very very quickly and we can also help them very quickly and that's that's a really satisfying thing to us but there are just so many of these sort of first time or you know maybe not maybe not first time but like in the role they're in it's there's weight to it and they're not Kind of formally trained necessarily in the in the management of the people, and then they're also at the same time they're trying to, they're hoping to aspirationally they're they're like helping make the business better, right? They're getting more aligned to the business. They're doing the things to to have the conversations with the, the leadership teams. It's just it's really hard stuff. So getting getting involved in in removing some overhead for them, even um, quick time quick time to value right on some answers. They just, they're hungry for that and they, they, they're really satisfied when you bring them clarity. So we see that in spades, uh, in, in companies right now. Yeah. Adam, Adam touched on something that's really important. It's like there's no real career training for engineering leadership, right? We, right. we get promoted frequently because somebody's like, you're a good developer and you seem like you're the best at talking to people. okay and 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 then you couple that with this sense in a lot of organizations where the only way you can stay relevant in the company the only way you can increase your pay the only way you can you can grow is to move into a management role right they don't have that parallel architecture track or senior principal engineer track that that is uh consistent and so People either feel forced into it or, or feel like that's their only option. And so they, they take that road, they get no support, they get no training. And then all of a sudden they're being asked to report on, like, how's the team doing? And you're like, I don't know. Here's a, here's a list of data, right?
0: Like <laughs> They're fine.
1: Yeah, they're fine. It'll <laughs> be yeah. fine. You, you get these two, we see these two archetypes all the time, right? It's this nebulous, you know, yeah, it's going pretty well. Or you get this like here's a 10 page list of metrics that I compiled I don't know which ones matter but like I heard data is good so here you go right <laughs> <laughs> we we, yeah, we really work like... really hard to help people escape those right and, and one of the things we do is actually we we embed ourselves in the places where where they're already communicating with their peers so we'll create like a shared Slack channel we'll create a we'll, we'll get into their their workflow. And so if they have questions, it's ah, you know, a common thing that customers will do. It, we're, we're trying to improve X or I'm trying to make a case to hire more people to do this, or we need to make an investment here. I think the data, if I could put this data together in this way, I'll be able to answer that question. But I'm wondering if you have other customers that have had similar questions and what did they do? Right. And we become the sounding board for that. That says like, well, you know, here's what we've seen in the past. Here's what's been successful. Try looking at the data in this way, and we can coach them through those decision processes.
2: I really like that. Um, it seems like you guys have adopted or developed a kind of I suppose, system of making decisions and communicating that kind of like removes, uh, you know, removes like angst and blame, which is something that I think, especially in like. Engineering teams with newer people, especially like when they don't always know what they're doing and how that relates to the business. Some of them get really kind of paralyzed by fear of, I'm going to screw something up or I'm going to break something and it's going to be terrible. And if you just kind of have the system in place of, hey, we're all just doing this stuff and this is kind of what we want to happen at the end of it, but maybe we'll look at it and decide that we really want for it to be this other thing. And that's just kind of an open and transparent conversation. It seems like it could remove a lot of the. Potential mental health days that need to be taken from, uh, you know, the, the ramifications. Of of, yeah,
1: yeah, the ramifications of the fear and uncertainty for the business, again, are very bad. Like, like a, a very big problem and small ways to be more transparent and, and thoughtful, more human, right? On like, we're, we're centered on a problem for a business. We have all the data. We can be clear about where we're going. That does let people. It's like a relief valve a little bit, you know, specifically on that fear and uncertainty. And we think that is a building block for more repeatable, more reliable delivery for the end users, for the customers, for the the business stakeholders.
2: Well, sounds very cool. And I'll bet you guys get to deal with uh, kind of a lot of interesting problems and get insight into a lot of different businesses. Is there any like particular industry that you tend to work most in, like B2B SaaS or... Uh, You mentioned agriculture earlier or anything like that, or is it really across the board?
1: It's pretty broad, especially with kind of the the broad digital transformation trends in the industry. You know, we we see a lot of B2B SaaS technology companies and kind of the mid market, a lot of like pre-IPO companies or post-IPO companies. You'll see a lot and a lot of Fortune 1000 type orgs. One thing that's interesting is if you, if you think about the provenance of certain types of companies and, and kind of where they came from and how data-driven their founders or leadership might be from a different function, like, you know, like financial services it's always really interesting. Right? They're often led by very accounting or spreadsheet-driven folks, and they've largely been able to get the rest of the business to that data-driven place. Um, and so there's a lot of appetite in those types of companies to have engineering. Kind of participating in similar ways, to what the rest of the rest of the functional leaders are are also doing, and so we see a lot there. E-commerce and retail tends to be another pretty, pretty heavy hitting sector for us, but largely it's just like you know that everybody talks about every company as a software company. I mean, our largest customers aren't customers that you would look at and be like, "Oh, it's a software company," right? But they are. And they have these massive technology organizations and they're betting the farm on their ability to to ship software.
0: Right on. Anything else we should talk about?
1: Allstacks.com. Check us out. There we go. Yes, that's a
0: a good point. If uh, people do want to learn more, obviously Allstacks.com. Any other ways for them to get a hold of y'all?
1: Turns out I'm the only person on the internet with my name. So...
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is like a superpower.
0: Yeah.
1: Pretty awesome. If you Google me, it's all me. I'm the only one on LinkedIn that's me. Um, <laughs> message me, my email address is there, my Twitter handle's the same. Literally everything, very easy to find. Nice. Um, so happy to chat, happy to help. The one thing we tell everyone is we're gonna try to help you no matter what, whether that's in relation to all sex or not. If you have a question, reach out. We'll do what we can, even if it means we'll point you to something else. But we're here to help first and foremost.
0: Right on. Nice. All right. Really um, appreciate you guys taking the time. Yeah, no, this enjoyed has been it. a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you guys for yeah, showing up and, uh, and having a chat.
3: Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So one thing I failed to mention
0: before we recorded is we do picks at the end of every episode, and it can be uh, something tech-related, something non-tech-related, just something to share with anyone who's made it to the end of the podcast. Jillian, have you got a pick for us this week?
2: I do. When we were talking in the conversation earlier, it reminded me of one of my favorite books that uh, that's called... The social conquest of the earth by Edward Wilson. I, li- I just had to look up the author name while we were talking because I couldn't remember his name. And it's just, it's a very interesting kind of overview of how psychology organizes itself, but not from like an individual point of view, but from like a, like a societal point of view. And then they make a lot of, uh, kind of comparisons between not just humans, but also insects because insects are like, completely crazy and if they were smarter they would completely take over the world which is absolutely terrifying to me because i hate bugs but (laughs) it's still you know it's still really really cool to learn about so if if you're interested in that kind of thing and um yeah like how just how psychologies organize themselves when you have like multiple ones brought together i think that's probably my favorite book on the topic that's it that's all i got this week i did not come prepared social conquest of the earth
0: Cool. I'm going to pick the workshop survival guide. It's a book from Rob Fitzpatrick and Devin Hunt. And it not only applies to how to build workshops and he does a great job of helping you like start from the blank page and create workshops that, that are focused, that keep people engaged. Cause I'm sure we've all been to the workshop where you're just fighting and putting toothpicks under your eyelids to stay awake through the duration of the workshop. And so he really has a great framework for helping with that, but it also applies to other areas of engineering because it's pretty frequent that we'll try to share or do knowledge transfer uh, with other members of our teams or with other teams or support staff or something like that. And so I think it's, it's a great framework for doing that as well so that's my pick of the week the workshop survival guide all right hirsch you got a pick for us
1: yeah this is uh a friend of mine a couple years ago recommended this this book to me it's called boys in the boat by daniel james brown it's about the university of washington crew team which eventually went to the olympics and competed in the nazi germany berlin olympics And it's like you ever read like Devil in the White City, which is probably the most popular in the genre of like two historical stories that eventually intersect. It's kind of like that. I really love it because it's about team formation and not not to totally spoil it. But TLDR, like you put the nine physically strongest rowers in the boat and it turns out to be the slowest boat. You put the team that gels and comes together. That's not necessarily The strongest but they're the most compatible they have the most similar ethos work style etc and you get them working together and they're the fastest boat right and i think about that all the time the nuances of that how like deep the coach had to go to really understand each human on their team to figure out what was the construct around the team that made them successful how did their personality scale how did their their goals align to be successful and it's the journey of like learning that, constructing that, developing that to ultimately go go win the gold medal in 1936. And so I always look for narratives like that as ways, kind of a line. Like I, I'm not like huge on business books, right? right. I, I like this form of business book. I, I think about it as a business book because it's it's about the like fundamental units of building a business, is around team formation. And it's a lot more fun to read at the same time. So a friend of mine gave it to me. Love reading it. I recommend it all the time. And it it's helped inform not just how we build our company, but also how we build our product. Right on.
0: And then last but not least, Adam. Over to me.
1: Yeah, I'll go with not a book, but someone to follow and read. So Jeffrey Moore over at Wildcat. Venture partners and author, most commonly known for uh, you know crossing the chasm and some other books. I I just caught this morning that he they're they're an investor of ours as well, and it's you know someone that I follow pretty closely on LinkedIn. And he posted this morning a a new like article. It's pretty short, but basically framing out his thoughts on four kind of looming mega trends over the next decade. And I I, you know I, I think. I think it's pretty fascinating his his four points were in terms of trends, depleting the digital surplus, which is is worth a little read in and of itself next generation containment of inflation so this is it's business and technology and and like macro trends altogether through the return of hard tech and then onshoring of of critical manufacturing as things that are gonna really change the the landscape and how we even think about like companies and investments and and software generally so i won't
0: i won't spoil it all but but worth a look right on that sounds awesome cool and so that's a wrap thank you again for joining us it's been a great conversation and thanks everyone for listening and we'll see y'all next week thank you thank you take
3: care bye bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn